Well, this weekend, I want to speak about the, the will of God, okay? And, uh, and how does it work with our will? Because when it comes to seeking the will of God, this is something that Christians think about very often. There are, there are many times in which I've, you know, at the end of the service, that people have come up to me and asked me to pray for them. And essentially, they're asking me to pray for them in the area of discerning the will of God. Is this the will of God? You know, when we switch jobs, when we make major life decisions in our lives, we really want to ascertain what is the will of God. Amen? And of course, it is presumed that we should seek out the will of God before we do something because we want to obey His will for our lives. But the problem with when something is mouthed so often is that really it becomes something in which we may not have fully understood how the will of God works according to the Scriptures. We say it so often, but how many times have we thoroughly studied the subject of God's will and what the Word of God tells us about it? So this weekend, what I want to do is I want to deep dive into an understanding of what the will of God is. I want to begin that by asking two questions. Whenever we talk about the will of God, at least for myself, these are two questions that I ask. The first is this, what motivates us to seek the will of God? Of course, we should assume that most Christians seek the will of God because we love God. Amen. And we want to please Him. And there is a sense that God is the master of our choreographer behind the scenes, weaving together all things with an ultimate purpose. Amen. And so we place ourselves into His hands. We yield ourselves to the Lord because we want to be a part of what He is doing. That is the ideal. But I think that many times as Christians, we end up seeking the will of God for something much more personal and selfish. When I was a young Christian, I was raised to understand this theology about the will of God, whereby if we do not pray according to the will of God, then God is not obliged to answer our prayers. Amen? And basically, that is true. That is what the Scripture says. But at the same time, you know, um, I was, you know, this theology teaches me that, hey, you know, my life, if it's not live in accordance to the will of God, then the blessings of God will not follow. In fact, I recall testimonies whereby people's lives went into a tailspin because of their failure to seek out the will of God. Now, the problem with a theology like that is that it reduces our walk with God to a very transactional level. I obey the Lord because of what I can get out of the Lord. I do this, I seek the will of God because, you know, I want the blessings of God. Amen. And, you know, and our relationship with God becomes wholly governed by a carrot and stick equation. And I don't think that's how God intends for it to be. Worse still, our obedience, our desire to seek His will becomes driven by fear instead of trust. Amen. We fear what is the result and the consequences if we are out of the will of God. Instead of coming to a place of trusting the fact that God's purposes is for us is the best. And that's why we seek His will. Now, I think it might be very insightful for us if our seeking of God's will is primarily focused on our lives, then I think we've got it wrong. Right? If every time you pray for the will of God, it's about something personal. Lord, should I take this job? Lord, is this the course of studies that I should pursue? Lord, is this relationship meant for me? And if all the things that we're seeking God for has to do with ourselves, I think we really have come to a place where our motivation for seeking the will of God is very, very self-centered. You see, the discovery of God's will does not begin with a desire to know what God wants for us. Instead, it should start from a place of seeking what is in His heart. 
You see, when David decided to conquer Zion and take Zion as the capital of Israel, David wasn't analyzing the, the geography of Zion and he's saying, hey, this place is ideal, this is central, you know, it's a natural fortress, it's defensible, from here I can rule the whole kingdom. David was not thinking like that. He was not seeking a place for himself. But David took Zion because in his time of intimacy with God, he found out and he peeked into the heart of God and discovered that God loves Zion. And so he chose Zion because it was on the heart of God. You see, the source, the motivation is completely different. When we come to God seeking His will because we need something, it's very different when we know the will of God because we're seeking Him. Amen? The second question we got to ask is this. Does God have everything mapped out? Does God have every single thing mapped out in our lives in a master blueprint? And this master blueprint covers all of mankind. And also to what degree of details does God map things out? Does God orchestrate every single moment, every single second of our day so that every moment we encounter and every person that we meet is appointed by His will? Amen? I want to show us a list of things in which the Scriptures shows us that this is the will of God. Because it's one thing for us to understand something based on our mind's imagination. This is what the Word of God tells us concerning His will. So from the New Testament, I want to show you this is the express will of God, okay? The first thing is this, water baptism is the express will of God. It is God's will that we all get water baptized, Amen. And if you're not water baptized and you're sitting in this place and you've been a Christian for some time, I want to encourage you, get water baptized because the Word of God tells us this is the will of God for us. Amen? Not, we should not delay on this. We should quickly move on this. The second thing is to abstain from sexual immorality. And this is the express will of God. No fornication, no adultery, right? No pornography. Learning to walk in purity before the Lord. The third thing is to give thanks in all circumstances, always. Let thanksgiving flow, flow from our lips all the time. This is the will of God. Obeying the authorities of the land. This is the will of God. Amen. As long as the laws are not unrighteous, as long as the laws do not defy the word of God, we should obey the statutes of the land. Right? Speed limit is 90 kilometers per hour. It's 90 kilometers per hour. The government says, put on your masks. We put on our masks. This is the will of God. Amen. The fourth thing is suffering when it is appointed by God. There's suffering that is not appointed by God, but there's suffering appointed by God. And it is the will of God when He does appoint suffering because there is a purpose, there's a theology behind suffering. Amen. The sixth thing that the Bible shows many times is that Apostle Paul, in terms of his calling as an apostle, tells us that it is the will of God, that God called him to be an apostle. The, the suffering and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, that is the will of God. Now, as you peruse through these things of what is expressed in the Word of God concerning what is His will, I want to say that there is no indication that God has a master blueprint for every single moment of human history. But instead, the Bible seems to speak about the will of God in terms of boundaries, in terms of certain rules, certain things that are laid there for us. Amen. And we need to begin to understand this, that when it comes to certain people who have been called by God with a certain task, that is the will of God. But the will of God is about walking in, in purity. The will of God is about an, a thankful attitude. The, the, the will of God is about how we behave in society. That's the will of God. Now, let me drill this down in a more practical way 
so that it will help us understand how to discern the will of God when it comes to these things. I want to talk about marriage, okay? Because so often as Christians, there's some sector of Christianity or Christians who believe that when it comes to marriage, God has one special person that He's, that, that in His master plan, that is the person that we're supposed to marry. And so we pray, God, show me who this person is. Now, is there indication in the Word of God that this is, the, this is how God works? In most instances, this is not. In some rare instances, God does bring a specific person to another, such as when God brought Rebekah uh, to Isaac. But you'll notice this, with Jacob, he had to make choices. With David, King David, he had to make choices. In the Old Testament, the norm is that people make choices about who their marriage partners would be. Now, let me say this. God does not have one specific person that He's called and designed for you to marry. Because if that's the case, then all you need is one silly fella in this whole planet to make a mistake and you'll mess it up for everybody. It makes no sense, amen? But instead, what the Bible tells us is that it shows us that when it comes to marriage, that we're not to be unequally yoked. And that's a boundary, that's a parameter, you understand that? In other words, we are to marry within the faith, and not just within the faith, we need to marry somebody who is equally yoked with us in terms of vision, in terms of the calling of God in terms of the values in which that, that we're in. This is the, pa- the parameter that God has given to us. And as long as we choose someone within that parameter, we are in the will of God. Amen? You see, I want to say this, that marriage is not so much about finding the perfect partner. There isn't. You, might, you may find the perfect partner, but you ain't the perfect partner. I thought I found, you know, when I, I thought Wendy was the perfect person for me, you know? And, um, and I discovered she was perfect because she's always right and I'm always wrong, you know? <laughs> but I want to say this, the wonder of marriage is so much more about the process of growing together, negotiating through life, learning, adjusting, changing, forming of our character, right? And I want to encourage us, for those of us who are married, you know, the problem is this, that we see marriage as an end in itself. We get married, before marriage, oh, we date, there's romance, you know, we go on a diet to make sure that we can fit into our wedding suits and our wedding gown. Then the moment you're married, (laughs) don't care anymore. (laughs) Eat without restraint. And we don't, we don't pour into the marriage anymore. You know, we go for a pre-marriage cause, but there's no post-marriage cause. We go to, if you're married and in the last five years you've not gone for a marriage cause, I want to encourage you, go for one. Because the wonder of marriage, the development of marriage happens after marriage. Amen? Yep. And that's what it is. We need to work at it. This is the will of God. This is how God designed things to be. Now, I want to draw one more example about our careers and our employment. Let's see what the Scriptures tell us. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, it says this, whatever your hand finds to do, do with your might. Whatever your hand finds to do. Hello? All the young people out here? Whatever your hand finds to do. It's not about finding the perfect job. Right? Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, it says, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. You see, we ought not to pursue the will of God to such an extent whereby we become incapacitated and paralyzed from making decisions. I've met people who, couldn't, who can't decide anything at all because they're waiting for the will of God. And one year passes, two years passes, and they refuse to work because they're still waiting for the will of God. There's something wrong in that, amen. We need to ask God for wisdom. We need to do our due diligence. We need to commit to prayer. After that, make a decision. 
If you need to put food on the table, go work. There's a lot of jobs available. And I want to say this, we have a good Heavenly Father as long as we are not defiant, as long as we're not rebellious, you know, and we're not intentional in going against God. I want to say that God will not abandon us. Even if you make a wrong choice or the situation is not ideal, I'm telling you this, we have a good Father who will help us. Amen. Now, it is on this note that I want to consider a particular episode in the life of Paul, the Apostle. And this is found in Acts chapter 21 because I think this episode is very insightful for us concerning how the will of God intersects with what we want to do. Amen. By Acts chapter 21, Paul, at this point in his life, had already planted almost all the churches that he's known for. Okay? There's one more place that he knows in his heart that he's supposed to go to, which is in the will of God, and that is Rome. But somehow, deep in his heart, he also wanted to go to Jerusalem. Now, there's something you need to know about Paul. Paul is unafraid of suffering. In fact, he loves suffering. He loves it so much that we can call him a glutton for suffering. When there is suffering on offer, he will go and straight away buy it, okay? He will go for it, okay? That's how Paul is. Look, you know, and, and you got to know that that's what he really has a heart for. So let me document the guidance that he received regarding his desire, his own desire to want to go to Jerusalem. You see, Paul begins in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. He says goodbye to the church in Ephesus because he knows it's the last time he's going to see them. And then he goes to Tyre and in Tyre, he finds some disciples and they begin to prophesy to him concerning his desire and his intention to go to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 21 verse 4 says this, and finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, notice this. I don't think this can be any more specific. They told Paul through who? Through the Spirit. They were not telling Paul through their own soul, through their own flesh. This is not a word of their own imagination. This did not come from the devil telling him, don't go to Jerusalem. This came from the Spirit of God. And instruction is unambiguous. The Lord is telling Paul not, not to go to Jerusalem. Amen. But guess what? Paul wants to go. And the disciples couldn't convince Paul otherwise. So Paul sets his heart on Jerusalem. Next place he goes to, he goes to Caesarea. At Caesarea, they stay in Philip the Evangelist's house, the one who was, you know, who was appointed one of seven deacons. And he has four daughters who are prophetess, who, pro who are prophetic. And let's pick up this text from verse 10 in Acts chapter 21. In three verses, it says this, And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus saith the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Amen? Now, in these three verses, you have two confirmations about what has been told to Paul. The second confirmation came from a man called Agabus, and he was a prophet, and he prophesied exactly the same things as the brethren from Tyre. Don't go to Jerusalem. And the third confirmation is because there are four prophetesses there, and they did not disagree with the prophet. They affirmed, they confirmed, they said, yes, this is the word of God. Don't go to Jerusalem. And the synchrony cannot be clearer. The will of God is made undoubtable. Paul, you are not to go up to Jerusalem. But I tell you what, Paul was so accustomed to persecution in all his ministries, all his travels, that when he heard persecution, he immediately think that it's a confirmation according to his internal default. The Holy Spirit says, don't go. <gasps> Suffering. Yes, will of God, I'm going. 
After all, it was Paul who taught Timothy that if we suffer with Christ, we also reign with him. He also, he also told us about how he prayed to God to remove a thorn in his life and God said, no, my grace will be sufficient for you. In 2 Corinthians, he documented the sufferings he's gone through. Five times he was whipped 39 strokes. Wow, that's a lot. I, I look at some of you men here, if you've ever been whipped by your wife, all the best, okay? It's a taste of uh, suffering and persecution. No, I'm just kidding. But then he goes on, he says, three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. A day and a night, and night he was stranded in the open seas. Now, if there's somebody who knew suffering, Paul was so accustomed to suffering that, you know, when he was told that it is not God's will for him to suffer this time, he couldn't hear the Holy Spirit anymore because he's so accustomed to it. You see, all of us have got these blinders in our lives. Just because God has moved several times in a particular way in our lives, He may come all along and He says, no, this time I'm not going to move in this way, but can we hear what the Lord is saying? You see, they couldn't convince Paul what to do. So in verse 14, this is what the Bible tells us, that when he or Paul could not be persuaded, we see saying, the will of the Lord be done. I like that. That sounds like a pastor talking. Like we tell the people, don't do this. No, I want to. No, don't do this. No, I want to do this. No, don't do this. But I want to do this. Okay, okay, let the will of God be done. You know? This is what happens, verse 14, okay? They gave up trying to convince Paul, but they committed the matter into the will of the Lord. And this is important, okay? This is important. Now, the next thing is then that Paul goes to Jerusalem and within a few days, all hell breaks loose. He was arrested. The Jews tried to kill him. The Romans stepped in, found out he's a Roman citizen. And then they discovered there's an assassination plot that is hatched against him. And so literally hundreds of soldiers were assigned to him and he was moved from Jerusalem back to where? To Caesarea, to the governor Felix. Felix stood on this case for two years because he doesn't want to make a decision. And then Festus comes and he's the next governor. He wants to please the Jewish people. And so Paul appeals to Caesar and he's to move to Rome and then King Agrippa comes and he actually says, hey Paul, actually, you know, you don't need to appeal. There's nothing wrong with this. But he had already appealed. All in all, Paul stayed two years in Caesarea until he shipped off to Rome. And even then, the drama doesn't stop. He's shipwrecked, he's bitten by poisonous snakes before he finally arrives in Rome. Now, you can look at all this and conclude, yeah, Paul disobeyed the will of God. Of course, his life went into the tailspin of trouble, persecution, and unnecessary trials. Uh, probably so, probably so. But I want you to take note of this. In Acts chapter 23, verse 11, at the beginning of all these trials, the Lord appears to Paul, and this is what the Lord did. In verse 11, it says, But the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Essentially, the Lord appeared to Paul at the beginning of this uh, ordeal and encouraged him. I mean, come on, I don't believe this. Paul clearly defied the will of God. He ignored the prophetic word. Three times he was told not to go and still he went. He was obsessed with just going. And when the Lord appears, he doesn't rebuke Paul. He doesn't reprimand him because I'm telling you, if I was Jesus and I showed up in front of Paul, I said, didn't I tell you so? See that? Good for you. You deserve it. Don't obey. That's why. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, the Lord comes and He says, be of good cheer. Come on, cheer up. And the Lord says, I'm going to be with you. 
and nothing's going to deflect you from my will and my will for you is to go to Jerusalem and to bear witness. He comes with encouragement and assurance. And in this verse, the will of God is made clear. God was going to send Paul to be a witness in Rome no matter what. Nothing was going to deflect the will of God for Paul's life even if Paul ignored the clear leading of the Holy Spirit not to go to Jerusalem and in spite of that, God was still going to bring him into his will. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that's absolutely amazing because it's so contrarian to the way and the theology that I've been raised to believe concerning the will of God and how the will of God works in our lives. Amen. In fact, as I considered this, this uh, you know, episode, this account, I'm reminded that, hey, Paul isn't the only one doing this kind of things. David, I likewise, initiated something that was not on God's agenda, if I could say this is not God's will, and it sprung from David's heart, David's passion, and was to build God a house. The temple that was in Jerusalem was not the will of God. It was David's desire, it was David's passion, it was David's love project towards the Lord. And theologically speaking, the temple in Jerusalem was never the will of God. Because God had to send His prophets to remind the people, it's not in the temple. I don't live in the temple. I live in the hearts of men and women who are broken and contrite. God in the Old Testament was already telling the people, it's not about the temple. Jesus comes and He reiterates that for which He's been accused and for which one of the major reasons why He was crucified. Because He told the people, you don't have to pray in the temple. Because God is looking for those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. The Lord said, when you pray, pray for the, you know, the, the God's will to be done in all the earth, not just in Jerusalem, not just at the temple. And, God, and the Lord kept turning the people's attention away from the temple towards a true attitude of worship. I want to say that God was, it was not God's perfect will, it was not God's desire to build the temple, but it was David's heart. But yet what intrigues me is that God permitted David, God permitted Paul to craft their will and their desire into his scheme of things. Even though it didn't originate in God's heart, the temple in the end became a central landmark in the Old Testament. Even though it was not God's desire for Paul to go to, to, to Jerusalem, the record of his ordeal right throughout uh, his journey in Jerusalem, the persecution, everything became a part of the Holy Scriptures. God did not write them, those things off. He did not erase them. He put it into text for us. And you know, what the, and what does this tell us about God's will and how it intersects with ours? How, does this ex, how is this explained theologically? Let me say this, that when our will run against God's will, we should submit to His will. That's what the cross is. The cross is when we want to do something and God wants us to do something else and that's made known to us, then we surrender, we acquiesce our will to His and that's what the cross is. However, there are also instances where something in our heart, our love, our passion for God springs up and it overwhelms us and we say to the Lord, Lord, I want to do this for you. Lord, I want to serve you. God, I want to be spent for you. Lord, I want to build this for you. You see, the source of Paul and David's desire was not rebellious. They were not in a place where they, they didn't want the Lord. They didn't want what God is doing. It was not about rejecting the will of God for their lives. Instead, the initiative comes from a deep sense of passion for God. You know, years ago when I graduated from university, the, the practice in those days was that when you're graduate, graduating, before you start work, you'll do a major post-graduation trip. 
And I remember that my friends, you know, my classmates, everybody planned these big trips, you know, and all the tour agencies came to the university and everybody saved up. And every single one of my friends went to Europe, they went to the US, they spent a month there, they traveled, they had fun. It was their final, you know, um, trip of fun before work life began. And I remember as a young Christian, I was very zealous for the Lord. And I looked at all my, what my classmates were doing and I said to God, I said, Lord, I'm never going to do something like that. My life is for you, Jesus. I'm not going to spend my money and joy. I'm going to give myself the missions. And I decided I was going to spend one month in the mission field. That time I went to Pastor Rupert, one of the pastors here in Cornerstone. And I said, I want to go on a mission trip. And he said, yeah, I'll send you to the Philippines. He gave me one name, one contact. And he said, Go. I flew there, I had no itinerary, I had no place to stay. I met this person, they gave me a place to stay. And then, you know, two days later, a pastor came by and said, hey, I need some help in this ministry, will you come with me? I said, yeah, sure, I'll go. The second week, another pastor came, would you help, come and help me do this? And I said, yeah, I'll go. And four weeks, I spent traveling all over the northern part of Philippines doing these things. But now, as I think about it on hindsight, I realized that, hey, it was not that I heard from the Lord. In fact, at that time, Pastor Young said to me, Lib, you know, I don't think you should make this trip. I think you should do something else, you know. And as my pastor, I think that he does hear from the Lord. But I said to him, Pastor Young, I already paid for the ticket. I'm going, you know, I really want to do this. This is what's on my heart. I want to do this. And so I did it. But I want to tell you the graciousness of God. The graciousness of God is till today, we are still seeing some fruits coming out of that trip that I made some 20 years ago. You know, I made the trip in the final week, I met this pastor in a little city called Lagawe. From there, we built a relationship and a partnership with them. From there, we went to Santiago and today we have a work in Santiago. And that came out of that trip. And then from Santiago, we met another pastor who was planting a church in Philippines and out of that comes our church today in Novaliches. You know? And I look back at this and I, th I think to myself, honestly, it just came from me. I don't think God spoke. I don't think that God told me. In fact, you know, I don't think I was fully in the will of God when it comes to doing this, but it was just my passion for the Lord. And yet, in spite of that, God took that love offering, God took that desire, that passion for Him, and He did something with it. The graciousness of God. You see, my intention of sharing this message is really for us to understand and to think about where our hearts are in our pursuit of God, whenever we have a desire to serve the Lord, whenever there's an overwhelming passion to want to express our love for God, I want to say that God honors that. And God makes room for that. Amen. Our relationship with God concerning the will of God is not mechanical, whereby everything is about God, what, you want, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? There are instances whereby God makes room for us, whereby we can tell Him, Lord, I really want to do this for you. And the Lord will say to us, yeah, come. The Lord doesn't rebuke us. The Lord doesn't penalize us. But He takes what comes out of our heart and He crafts it into what is His will for us as well. He amalgamates it into His overall plan for our lives. Amen. I want to invite us to stand to our feet and I want us to respond to the Lord. Amen. Because I really believe that God wants to liberate us, to dream with Him. God wants to liberate us whereby we can come to Him not just to say, Lord, what is your will? But we can come to Him and say, Lord, I really want to do this for you. I want my life to be spent for you. I want my life to be given to serve you. And I want to make room for you 
And God wants to make room for us as well. Amen. I want to ask us to bow our heads and close our eyes. If there are people standing in this place this morning, and I'm not going to ask anybody to come to the altar area, but we're going to sing a song and we're going to worship the Lord together. Amen. And we're going to, we're, we're going to make room. You know, and, and I, we, you know, I've got three boys. Let me just close with this, okay? I've got three boys and, you know, when, when we used to have vacations or different things, I would plan everything. I'll plan the itinerary, I'll plan where we are going, I'll plan it down, you know, to such details. You know? But as the boys grow older, they want to participate in the process. And honestly, initially, I, I just didn't want to do that because it takes me half an hour to do something. But when they're involved, it might take me three days to do it, right? But as the boys grow, it is important as a father that I make room for them. It might be a bit, little bit more tedious. It might be a little bit more troublesome. It might involve more effort if I would just do it myself. But it's important for me to involve my sons and make room for them. And I feel the father says that to us as well. Yeah, we're going to cause a little bit of problem here. We're going to make things a little bit more difficult. You know, a journey might have taken two months and now it's going to take two years. But hey, the Lord wants to make room for us. And will we step into that room? Will we say to the Lord, Lord, I want to be part of this. Lord, I want to dream. Lord, I want to do something. Lord, I want to allow the passion that is in me to well up into action, into imaginations, into dreams that I want to do for you. In my workplace, in my school, in the mission field, in the areas that you've called me to. And I want to ask us, Today, every head bowed and every eye closed. If that is you and you are saying to the Lord, Lord, I want to be spent for you. Would you lift up your hands to the Lord? And we're going to sing this song together and we're going to worship the Lord and we're going to ask the Lord to make room. Amen. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.